0: So as we move into chapter 17, we're beginning what I would consider to be the home stretch of the book of the Revelation. We've got this vision, chapter 17 to 19, and then one more vision cycle, for chapters 20 to 22, and we'll be finished. And it's in these last two vision cycles that a lot of the imagery that we've seen all the way back from the beginning of the book begins to sort of pile up on us. And you've probably remembered several times when I've said, now, that'll come up again later, and so we'll just leave that for later. Well, we've kind of gotten to later, so all of these things are piled up, and it's incumbent upon us to be reminded of some of the things that we've seen. That's a long way of saying, I'm going to do a recap of some of the things that we've seen and the, the purpose is we need it. Moving into this chapter, if we forget everything that we've seen so far, and some of you have, and you can give evidence to this fact, that some of these verses, when you begin to read them, you, you're thinking, what are we reading? What is happening? It's, it's because you've, you've probably forgotten something. So I want to try to bring back to our memory some of the most pertinent points of of our study. Remember that in in the broad scheme of the book there are two main divisions, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 to 22. In chapters 1 through 11, we focus there primarily on the suffering of the saints in the present time, the hope of glory that we have in light of the finished work of Christ, the glory that is to come. And then when we get to chapters 12 and to, through 22, we've sort of gone behind the stage to see what I called the war behind the war that was summarized by our Lord in John 15, 18 when He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, why are the saints suffering in this way? Well, we get to chapter 12, it's because the world hates Christ. Well, why does the world hate Christ? Because the, the devil, the serpent, The prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience leads them to make war against Christ and therefore to make war on His saints. The hatred of the world for Christ is rooted in the hatred of Satan for Christ. And so we saw in chapter 12, the serpent, the devil, makes war against the woman. She flees into the wilderness, a place where she's protected by God. The serpent, Satan was officially defeated in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. He was thrown down, it says in chapter 12, but from that point he comes down and begins to attack the church even more viciously than he ever has. And the text tells us why. Because he knows his time is short. Keep that in mind. He knows he has a short time to accomplish his mission. So he comes against the church. That woman of chapter 12 is the church. She's been carried away to be protected by God in the wilderness. The dragon pursues her into the wilderness. He pours out from his mouth rivers of deception in order to draw men away from Christ. Well, what does that mean? How does that play out in reality? Well, he does it through imitation and substitution. He puts forth a substitute to draw men to that and away from Christ. And that's what we saw in chapter 13 where we first met beast number one. This is what I called them, beast number one and beast number two. When you put them with the dragon, they constitute what some have called the unholy trinity. For us, there is one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. For the wicked, there is the satanic imitation, the dragon, beast number one and beast number two, or, as we learned later, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. It is an imitation, a a satanic imitation and substitution for the one true God. So the beast is not an end-time political figure, some individual in whom the world's power is going to be invested. The beast is symbolic of all of the kingdoms of men under the authority of Satan. He works with all of the power of the dragon. Like the dragon, he's already been officially crushed at the cross, and yet he still rises again, giving the appearance of a death and resurrection. One of his heads appeared as though it had been slain or crushed, and the people of the world worship this beast. Why? Because he appears to be undefeated and undefeatable. He arises again in every generation. It's the kingdoms of men manifested through political power and they exalt themselves against God under the influence of Satan. And though they rise and fall, we've often heard people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, Kingdoms rise and fall throughout history. Every generation comes along. uh, A supposedly new idea is elevated and men become enthralled with this system and they buy into the lie again. Every generation buys into the same lie that perhaps these men and this system will actually build the tower up to God and we'll make a name for ourselves. Now we could, and, and many commentators do, call this beast simply the state But we have to do that with some clarification because we know the the powers that be as an idea have been instituted by God. The problem is when wicked men arise to power, they war against God and this is what has happened from the very beginning. And even under the the sovereignty of God, they they still serve as a restraint. Even the the wicked uh, kingdoms of men very often serve as as a restraint in some form of some of the wickednesses of men. Then we met beast number two, the false prophet. The spirit of deception that leads men to worship that first beast. It leads the worshipers of that beast to persecute those who refuse to worship that beast. And the worship is conducted through the pursuit of economic prosperity under the controlling influence of political power. See if you can imagine it. Just try to picture An economy that rises or falls based on political power. An economy that rises and falls based on political power that gives prosperity to the wicked and causes the righteous to suffer for being righteous with government sanction. Can can we even imagine such a thing? Of course we can. It's where we live. This is how the kingdoms of men, they rise. The the book of Daniel tells us God sets up kings and He takes down kings. Men come to power and they may begin great, but it doesn't take long before. And we see this with the sons of Samuel. uh, The next generation is more and more wicked and they plummet. And they may build another one and it nosedives. And they build another one and it nosedives. Why? Because men are wicked. Of course we can imagine this. So this is the four main characters that we've been dealing with so far. We have the victorious Christ. We have the woman who is the church. We have this defeated dragon and his helpers, the beast and the false prophet. Now we come into the vision of chapters 17 to 19. And we've already seen several times that this whole system is going to come crumbling down with one final blow at the end of the age. The judgment of the final day will bring the the official, complete destruction of that whole system. There will be suffering and hardship, but we must continue to uphold the light of the gospel, to hold fast through suffering, to hold out until the end. That end might be our death. If that's the case, we've won the victory. Our end might be a, a, a martyr's death, in which case, we've won the victory. It might be that we remain into old age, into our 70s or 80s or 90s, but we die in the faith. We've won the victory. The devil did not win with this one. It might be that Christ returns while we're in our prime. And In, in either case, the victory for the saints is accomplished. We, But we must endure. The one who endures to the end will be saved, Christ said. "Chapter 17 to 19 are going to unpack what we saw in chapter 16, specifically the sixth and the seventh bowls of wrath, the, the, the crumbling of this world system. We saw, beginning, and this was last Lord's Day, beginning with the sixth bowl of the wrath of God, that a way would be made for the kings of the earth. I, I'm hoping that even as I recap this, you're going to think back to what we just read in the chapter and you're going to say, oh, the pieces, are it's Tetris. They're just, click, click. they're falling into place. Maybe they won't. A way, through the wrath of God, a way would be made for the kings of the earth under demonic deception to assemble themselves against the people of God. The church, they're following exactly behind the pattern of our Lord. The kings of the earth assemble themselves against Him. The kings of the earth will assemble themselves against us. And just like our Lord, through great and mighty acts of judgment, God will deliver His people and these earthly kingdoms, the beast, will be destroyed." 16.19 says, The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. The falling of these cities and the falling of the nations and the destruction of Babylon, that is what we're about to see unpacked in the sixth vision and the seventh vision going through to the end of the book. That means we need to be quickly reminded of the identity of Babylon. What is Babylon or who is Babylon? Again, all of this is recap. Some of this just directly copied and pasted from previous sermons. The revelation of Christ details the victory of Christ in the present age by chronicling the tale of two women, the bride of the Lamb and the harlot. One of them is faithful, one of them is faithless. One of them is referred to as the city of God, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And the other is the great city, Babylon, the city of man. So Babylon is the satanic substitute for the church who is the bride of Christ. So Babylon represents the entire world system against God. Now, we, we, as we begin to think about these things, we're thinking, well, well, over here we've got political power and over over here we've got the world system. And we think, well, this, it's really hard to keep these things separate in our minds. Okay? Exactly. She's riding on the back of the beast. They go together, you see. The world system against God. When John... The Apostle says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. It's that world, that system, which is called Babylon. Don't love that. Babylon was the quintessential city against God and His people. First the location of the tower built in the plain of Shinar, you remember that. The ancient peoples referred to it as Bab-elim, the gate of God. They had been pushed out of Eden and blocked from the presence of God. So they said, fine, good riddance. We'll go out here and make our own gate. We'll build our own city. We'll make a name for ourselves. That was the origins of Babel or Babylon. So Babylon symbolizes rejection of God, self-instituted will worship, prestige, and power, economic advancement, comfort, luxury, flourishing, everything the world offers apart from God. That's Babylon. Babylon is the representative attempt of an idolatrous world in revolt to exalt itself to heaven by its own strength for its own glory. Babylon is the great apostasy. I quoted from a commentator Brian Tabb. He says, Babylon the great in the apocalypse is the seed of Nimrod in full flower. It was the world's idolatrous, seductive, political economy. Beast, Babylon, put together. They are, they are one entity opposed to God and His people. It's the way of thinking and living which flows from enmity toward God and carnal lust. It manifests itself in an organized desire for achievement and prosperity and godlike status. I want to satisfy me apart from that God because in my mind I am God. That's Babylon. Now it is true that in John's day, as he penned these words, the clearest manifestation of Babylon was the Roman Empire. But since that time, it's been manifested in a thousand empires around the world. So for us, in our day, it is the United States of America as a political and economic system opposed to God. It's the world, wherever somebody might be, in all of its collaborated attempts to offer up a cheap, momentary substitute for the joys that God has promised to His people in Christ Jesus. The world says... If that's what God's got to offer, we'll offer it over here, apart from Him. Babylon is more than just an idea. We saw in chapter 14, verse 8, she's painted as a sexually promiscuous woman. The embodiment of engaging in lust that had hitherto existed in one's fantasies. Babylon is the manifestation of the evil world system where men and women actually participate and engage with the idolatry on a personal level. The institutional system where people display their allegiance to the dragon. They say, well, I don't worship the devil. Sure you do. You worship yourself in every aspect of your life. That's what he wants. I use the illustration of surfing. Surfing is an idea until you're in the water. And it's in the ocean that the notion of surfing becomes practice. It's not an idea anymore. I'm riding the wave. I'm doing it. Or horse racing, I said. It's an idea until you're at the Kentucky Derby. It's at the Kentucky Derby where horse racing, the idea for most of us who've never raced a horse, it's an idea. People race horses. When you go to the Kentucky Derby, you see it. But now you're participating. You're watching it unfold. Sex trafficking is an idea until you're standing before the bay window in Amsterdam looking into the eyes of a prostitute under the glow of a red light bulb reaching for your wallet. That's the picture here with the, in the language. The whore herself is the place where the notion becomes action. It's not just an idea anymore. We struggle to identify these things a lot of times, idolatry for a lot of us remains a notion or an, an idea. Or well, there is idolatry. People are, are idolatrous. Yes. Look at everything you do. Look at where you spend your money. Look at where you spend your time. Everything. The whole system is the place where the notion of idolatry is put before our eyes in such ways that we think, well, I'm not idolatrous. I'm just doing this and this and this and this and this. And the devil says, my job is done. I've got them drawn away from Christ. That's Babylon. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the whore. Satanic impersonations of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Bride of Christ. Now as we move forward, remember, there's nothing new in the book. It's going to be unpacked and opened up a little bit, but there's nothing new. And so... Even though the language changes some and, the, and the, the vision looks a little different, that doesn't mean the subject matter changes. And i say all that again and give that long introduction because some of these verses in chapter 17 can be very confusing. If we ignore everything we've seen and now two-thirds of the way through the book, we decide we want to read with a newspaper and a, a, a map, a calendar uh, and a newspaper and try to figure out what it means even if that calendar and that newspaper are from the first century. Because that would make it so exclusive that it has no relevance to future generations. We have to keep in mind what we've already seen. So in this chapter, we're going to get a closer look at Babylon the Great, the prostitute, the whore, the imitation, the substitute, the great opponent of the Bride of Christ. We see here, first, the formula of her success. Secondly, the force of her strategy... And thirdly, the failure of her seduction. First then, the formula of her success. And here we see how this wicked world system has been able to thrive in God's world. It's ironic, going all the way back to the plain of Shinar, if we trace that theme, they they built a city, God scattered them. Trace it through to Nebuchadnezzar and what they would call Neo-Babylonia. The, the next empires built up and they, they sacked the nation of Israel, but Babylon's gone now. Trace it all the way through. The, all, all these kingdoms of men, you see they rise and fall. They come and go. And those are just the ones we have record of. Who knows of the countless numbers of smaller, lesser known so-called kingdoms that have been built amongst tribal peoples that are not in history books. They, a, 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 a ruler is raised up. To power. He creates a little empire and then He's overthrown. It ha- it's happened throughout the centuries all over the world. They come and they go from generation to generation. And we, hopefully as believers, we stand back and scratch our heads and we ask, why can mankind not see that it won't work? That to set oneself up as a God never ends well. Because God doesn't, doesn't put up with that. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. Why? Here's the irony, the folly of this. When His breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, His plans perish. Everything that we build and and put into a man, and then He dies, and it's done. That's it. Move on to the next one. And, and we seem to just do it over and over again. How does it keep happening? How, what, what, what's, what's advancing this idea? Well, the, the answer is found in the nature and the plan and the purpose of the great prostitute. First we see her nature, beginning in verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute prostitute. Now it's important to keep in mind throughout this whole chapter that what John is being shown, and I would say chapter 17, 18 and 19, what John is being shown is the judgment of the great prostitute. We've already seen in chapter 16 God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of his wrath. Now the angel is going to show it in more detail. This prostitute is said to be seated on many waters. What could that possibly mean? Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 15. The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. A fourfold description of the entirety of the human race apart from God. Babylon cannot be exclusive to one nation or one time period. She's seated on... Many waters, not one people, but peoples, not one multitude, but multitudes, not one nation, but nations, not one language, but languages, the entire world against God. It says that she's the one with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now remember, sexual immorality points to spiritual adultery or idolatry. The kings of the earth are earthly rulers. The dwellers on earth are the lost, uh, lost people of all types and kinds, all, all levels. Kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, spiritual adultery, idolatry. The dwellers of the earth have become drunk. From kings all the way down to the common people, all of the ungodly of the world come to Babylon to satisfy the lusts of their spiritual adultery because Babylon is the place where they do it, wherever they might be doing it, there you find Babylon. Rather than serve the one true God, they worship the creature. Rather than mortify their lusts, they live to satisfy their lusts. And for every craving that enters into the wicked hearts of man, they can find somewhere a door in Babylon to go through and fulfill that lust. It says they've become drunk with this wine of sexual immorality. Like we saw last Lord's Day evening, the, the sin of mankind is bondage. It ensnares us and entraps us like wine. It, it makes the person who is drunk actually think that they're fine. They don't see it, they're, they're so blinded by it, intoxicated. Their senses are, are drowned in this wickedness. And so they just go deeper and deeper into this depraved debauchery, thinking, I'm free. I'm going as far into debauchery as I want. I'm free. Not knowing that they're they're blinded by their sin. This is what Babylon offers. A place, a time, a means, a way, and a justification for mankind to satisfy every debased passion that enters into his mind. The more wicked he becomes, the greater the form of wickedness that he needs to satisfy his lust. And the greater the need that he has, Babylon is right there to provide it. We'll take you as deep as you want to go, buddy. They create a system. Babylon is a system and a worldview where wickedness is justified and acceptable. If it's not justified and acceptable yet, give us a couple generations and we'll lull these people to sleep to a point at which it's justified and acceptable. Now notice John was taken into the wilderness exactly where the woman of chapter 12 was. There's this imitation motif again. The wilderness is the place of testing and trial and protection for the people of God. But it's also the very same place where the prostitute Babylon exists to entice and to seduce. What does he see in the wilderness? A woman. Now, having read chapter 12, if I would have just... Read the partial, the first part of verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman. You would think, oh, here's the woman we saw in chapter 12, because they're meant to be opponents. This is a woman, the prostitute, the substitute for the church. She's sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. We've seen this beast before, right? Chapter 13. When we read chapter 13, we said this beast is from another place in Scripture, from the book of Daniel. Daniel saw four beasts, four kingdoms... When we come to the Revelation, it's one beast which is a conglomeration of all of those kingdoms. The idea is not that this is one particular empire or kingdom, but that it is a conglomeration of all of the world empires as they oppose God and His people. And so the woman, the harlot, Babylon, she's sitting on the beast. The vehicle by which she diffuses her wickedness, and advances her anti-Christian system is through human governments, through world empires, through, we could call it the kingdom of man, political, magisterial power. She does act with power, but she doesn't simply come alongside and, and ride alongside these powerful leaders. She uses the powerful leaders. They are drinking from her cup. They are drunk with her wine. Now, what's her plan? Her plan is seduction and propagation. Verses 4 and 5 the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Notice she is out to seduce. Arrayed in purple, scarlet, gold, jewels, pearls, golden cup. She's dressed like royalty, all decked out on the outside with these decorations. She's holding a golden cup. If you see a golden cup, you're thinking whatever's in that cup is probably to be desired. It's probably sumptuous. It's probably a luxurious beverage. She draws people in. That's how she's dressed. Now what did Peter tell the wives in the churches to whom he wrote? He told them, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Christian women don't make their outside appearance the focal point of attraction. They don't use their external to draw people in. They don't attempt to entice with externals. But this woman Babylon, she's all externals. Everything is on the outside. What does that tell us? She's out to entice. She wants to get the eyes of people and draw them in. She entices the sensual appetites of carnal men and women. She's exactly the opposite of the bride of Christ. As we'll see, she's a bride adorned for her husband. She's dressed in a way that pleases Him and only Him because He has eyes only for her and she doesn't look in the mirror thinking, what will so-and-so think? Will this look good to the multitudes, the crowds? Will this be... No, her, her only concern is, what will my husband think of my adorning? That's how Christian women... Are to adorn themselves. That's how the bride of Christ adorns herself. But this prostitute, she's she's the complete opposite. Not only does she seduce men using their own evil hearts, but she propagates wickedness. And that's because the city of man is made of men. We have to be very careful that we, in in speaking of the, these things anthropomorphically, we don't begin to think that this is all. Again, notional or ideological. This is people. It's a city of man made of men. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. She gives birth to more and more evil. She doesn't merely facilitate the wickedness. She is the procreator of the wickedness. It comes from her. Again, because Babylon, the city of man, is made of men. It is the idolatrous hearts of men collectively gathered to oppose God. They unite. They they come together unanimously to say, we want to build an empire and oppose this God. It's wicked men giving birth to more wickedness. As we saw in Genesis chapter 6, when men multiplied on the earth, wickedness increased on the earth. Every intention of all of their hearts was only evil continually. More men, more wickedness. That's the way it works after the fall and before Christ returns. That text in 1 John 2.16, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. This world system, the cosmos, the the entire arrangement. You notice, it's, it's the minds and the lusts of men. The Flesh, the eyes, the life. Who's that? That's us. It's not something outside of men. It's not something outside of people. It is us. It's men who desire and lust and boast in themselves. It's men who exalt themselves. And Babylon is the the system that offers all of this, and she does so riding on the back of the beast. She does it with magisterial sanction. It's not as though men rise to power in the civil realm and labor to squelch the wickedness, though some do make strides in that area. The problem is it's those very men in power who eventually begin to codify their wickedness. Can you imagine it? Of course we can. What's her purpose? Her ultimate goal? She wars with the true bride. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. We've seen this thing over and over. It was especially pertinent to those churches. We saw it in chapters 2 and 3. Legislated, government-sanctioned, wickedness, eventually leads to the persecution and slaughter of Christians. Why is that? Because men hate the light. And it's our job to expose the light. And as we expose the light, as we, as we stand firmly against this encroachment of evil, as they push and we say, not moving, not budging, we're not going to join, their darkness gets darker and darker and darker and the, bright, the, the, the light, as the darkness gets darker, the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter and they are exposed more and more and that inevitably breeds more and more contempt. Now, in societies like our own that, that do have a Christian history and even now still retain some of that ethic in some areas, it takes a while for the darkness to get so dark that the light of the witness is seen as offensive and blinding. Now there, there will be individual cases here and there are individual situations that, that rise up and we'll hear about them. But there, in a nation like ours, there is, and we have seen a gradual increase in public wickedness. As the culture around us gets darker and darker, the light of Christ in us gets brighter and brighter. Now for a lot of the people that we interact with, they've not yet gotten to that point where they're just they're out for blood. They, they, might be, uh, they might see Christians as an annoyance. There might be a disagreement. They might see... Christians as a a voting demographic or a voter block that has to be won over to their side. But, But for the most part, they're not out for blood yet. They're not ready to take up the sword yet. The problem is the darker and darker it gets, and this is hard for us to imagine, but the darker and darker it gets, their rage increases more and more. This has happened throughout the centuries. History has proven it time and time again. Ultimately, the harlot riding on the beast, who has the authority of the dragon, is going to be used as a tool to do the dragon's work, which was what? To make war against her offspring. That's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy the kingdom of Christ in the earth, draw men away from Christ. That's the formula of her success. How does this keep happening? Because we've always got men rising to political power, she seduces men in power. She seduces men usually prior to their being raised to power. They codify wickedness. They draw men away from Christ. They persecute those that can't be drawn away. If you won't buy into what we're selling, we'll just kill you. That's that's their thinking. That's the thinking of Babylon as she rides on the beast. Secondly, the force of her strategy in verses 7 to 14 the force of her strategy. The text said that John marveled greatly. He's amazed at what he just saw. He was told that he's going to see the judgment of the great prostitute and then he sees her nature, her plan and her purpose and he says, how? How how could it be? How can this woman be so powerful and how can this woman ever be defeated? If this is an ongoing systemic thing, how's it going to be defeated? And how does it continue? The answer to these questions comes as we focus in on the underlying force of her work. She rides upon the beast. She works through human kingdoms, which will fall. So, in this age, she has a lot of power, but she doesn't have complete and total absolute power. In essence, the prostitute has chosen a very powerful vehicle, it's very low on gas. It's very strong. It's just not going to get her to where she needs to go. So we see this reference to the earthly kingdoms again. In verse 7, the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her again. Same beast of chapter 13. Compilation of the beast in Daniel's vision. A picture of all human empires. I'll explain it to you. In chapter 16, we saw that when the This great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. God remembered Babylon to make her drink the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. Babylon drinks wrath when the nations fall. And we've seen that before. Revelation 6, The kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and every one slave and free, will hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 11 The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. These kingdoms will fall and therefore the whole system is going to collapse. She's chosen a bad vehicle. It works for now, but it won't last forever. Why? Why is that? Because they're all cheap substitutes of the real thing. Just as the prostitute is a cheap substitute for a loving and dutiful bride. So all these kingdoms and empires of men are cheap substitutes of the kingdom of Christ. Now let's look at verses 8 to 14. Take a deep breath. We're going to think. This is one of those portions of Scripture where, in my estimation, a lot have gone astray. We happen to live in a place and time in history where we can look backwards and see, men have made very chronologically exclusive interpretations, and we can look back and say they were wrong. They were looking forward, they were making estimations, they were guessing, and we see it wasn't what they thought it was. Many at this point have begun to count kingdoms and em- emperors, especially Roman emperors, because Rome, of course, is relevant to the writers, or the, the readers, and the writer. Because there is this reference to the seven mountains, and so people begin to count Roman emperors. The problem is, we are reading apocalyptic literature. Mountains throughout prophetic and apocalyptic literature in the Revelation also are almost never meant to be taken as specifically, strictly geographical locations. Like we, we read many times of Mount Zion and we know we could go to a place that was referred to as Mount Zion, but we know that in the Scriptures, that phrase means a lot more than the dirt that you would ascend to get to the top of that hill. There's there's more behind the picture. In addition to that, we've got a lot of numbers here, and people want to count Roman emperors and try to decipher the exact date and timing of the book and when these things happened or would happen. and We've already seen that the dragon... And His horns and His heads are not meant to be taken as a, a singular empire, a, a conglomeration of all of the empires of the world. It's the world's power. Most of those commentators, when they begin to say, well, it says five of whom have fallen, one is, the other not yet come. Well, those first five were these five, and the one that is is this one, and the next one is this one. What they don't often tell you in their in, in interpretation is that there are a lot more than, than these numbers. It's like if there, were, if there were 15 and you said five have fallen, one is and one is yet to come. Where do I start counting? Does that make sense? So what you have to do is either start at the beginning, in which their interpretation doesn't make sense, or determine what your interpretation is going to be and then just figure out how to start counting to make that work. I think the... It's actually much simpler than all of that. Remember that the dragon operates as an imitation. An imitation of who? As an imitation of God. And he's often described in the Revelation repeatedly as the God who is and who was, or who was and is and is to come, or the one who is, was and is, and will take His great power and begin to reign. The, the idea is that the God that we serve is the, one, the transcendent Lord of all repeatedly He's brought out as the same God, the One who was and who is, and who is to come or who is coming. Notice the ironic twist in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. You can see a parallel between this language and the language of chapter 13. It's describing the same beast. This beast has existed for a long time. It was. It is not. It has officially been defeated but is about to rise. This looks like an apparent resurrection and then go to destruction. It it has existed. It it has fallen, but it will come back and it will be destroyed. It's not like the God who was and who is and who is to come. There will be one final effort against God and it's going to fail. We've seen that before. And people marvel, just like we saw in chapter 13. They continue to worship in every generation. They worship because the world systems and the kingdoms of men rise and fall and and men just continue to, to be enthralled with it. They seem invincible. There's always another one to come. Always a new leader, a new idea, a new scheme to advance sinful men. And so they worship. They're they're amazed. Dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the foundation of the world. Who is that? That's unbelievers in every generation and every time. They are enthralled with this concept, this beast, this power. What have we seen elsewhere? Heads represent authority. Horns represent strength. Mountains represent powerful kingdoms. The number 7 points us to qualitative completeness. The number 10 points us to quantitative completeness or fullness. We keep all of that in mind. We don't set that down and say, all right, chapter 16, it was fun. i got to go see chapter 17. We, We bring it with us. This calls for a mind with wisdom. And as I said last time, we saw a phrase like this. A mind with wisdom in Scripture never means... Get out, get out the encyclopedia, get out the calendar, get out the, the globe and, and, and do some counting. It never means that. It's, it's revelation from God. The seven heads are seven mountains. Rome was called a city on seven hill, hills by some. These are seven mountains. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is... The other is not yet to come, and when he does come, he rem- must remain only a little while. Compare that with the beast who was and is not and is about to rise and go to the bottomless pit. It's all the same picture. He remained only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, he it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. Crystal clear, right? Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is... Seated Well, back in verse 1, we saw that she's seated on many waters. And the many waters we saw in verse 15 are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The idea of seven heads or seven mountains is simply the completeness of the world's kingdoms, the kingdoms of men, as they are drunk with the wine of Babylon's spiritual adultery. Seven kings, five fallen, one is, the other is not yet to come. Seven... A completeness of power. All of the kingdoms of the earth we've seen are in bed with Babylon. Some have come and gone, some exist now, some are still to come. That's the idea. We don't the point is this is an imitation of God, but it fails. It's not to, to trace this out chronologically. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction, the beast. Kingdoms of men belongs to the seven or literally is of the seven. The conglomeration of power is not unrelated to but is a part of the seven kings, the complete fullness of power. Now the the issue of the eighth, it is an eighth. Here I'm just taking a stab. If you look back in the Old Testament, you very often see a reference to the eighth day the 8th was, was sort of the culminating completion of a festival. They would celebrate it for seven days and the 8th day was a solemn assembly or a great celebration, the culmination of it. The picture seems to be pointing to world kingdoms that have always existed. They're always coming and going but there is going to come a time when there is a culmination, an apex of this power and it goes to destruction. It all comes down. And that's explained in the next phrase. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Ten. Full quantitative power. Ten horns here belong to the beast. They're not separate, they're a part of the beast. They've not yet received power, but they will receive power. All of the kings of the earth will at some point receive this full authority for one hour, a very short time. Verse 13, they have this collective goal. They are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. Now let's compare that with what we saw in the sixth bowl. Verse 14 of chapter 16. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, ten kings, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Let me put it all together. Babylon rides on the beast. She exercises her influence through political power and oppression. She's always done this and will continue to do this. During the present time, she's going to do this through world powers that rise and fall. And at the end of the age, as a part of God's plan for her judgment, there's going to be a worldwide unanimous attack upon the people of God. That's the assembly of the ten kings, the kings of the whole world. They will rise with all the power of hell. They will make war on the saints. They will conquer the saints, as we saw in chapter 11. They will wear out the saints of the Most High for one hour, a very short time. Now, lest we become discouraged at the thought. That could be in our day. Some believe that this is is happening at the very moment. It could be in the future. But lest we become discouraged at the thought, verse 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. In other words, the battle belongs to the Lord. We saw it last week. We see it here. We're going to see it again in chapter 20. The battle belongs to the Lord. Why? Because the battle takes place on the day of God. It's God's day. Our King will ride forth in battle and will ride forth victoriously For us. Just as the nations plotted in vain against our Christ, so they plot in vain against us. Our bodies they may kill. His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. He must win the battle. This is the only way that it can be. He will ride forth victorious in those wicked days to come. The saints will suffer anything, or unlike anything, the church has ever seen. But our Lord will keep track of every bruise, every tear, and every drop of blood as if they were His own. He will return with the clouds of heaven, with vengeance in His eyes, and when He returns, He is returning for the slaughter. He's coming for us, and He's coming to make an end of all of our enemies. Even now, zeal. For His Father's house consumes Him as He lives to make intercession for His saints whom he's, for whom He's already prayed, I will that they be with Me to see My glory. I want them to be here. He's eaten up with it. It's building generation after generation, building this zeal to vindicate His people and He will return someday not with a whip but with a sword and He will strike down His enemies. So what is the force behind her strategy? She rides on the kingdoms of men, which works for a time. The problem is these kingdoms will fall. And so we see the lastly in verses 15 to 18, the failure of her seduction. Babylon has power because she associates herself with the kingdoms of men, but those kingdoms will fall, and when they fall, she falls. And when she falls, they fall because they're so closely connected. And this happens because they become dissatisfied or disenchanted with her. Verses 15 and 16, The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages all over the world. The ten kings that you saw, kings of the whole earth, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now this is all a part of God's judgment. Upon her. But as I read this, I couldn't help but think of the story of David's son Amnon when he loved his sister Tamar. And the scriptures say that he wanted her so badly it made him sick, tormented with lust. I must have, I must have, I must have. And when he finally got a hold of her and abused her and poured out his lust, he hated her. Wasn't what he thought it was going to be, didn't satisfy, didn't please his flesh. It's Proverbs 27, 20 says, Never satisfied are the eyes of man. So to make desolate, naked, devour the flesh, to burn with fire is, is to show that all these kings and kingdoms that have allied themselves with Babylon, it was only for selfish pleasure. They will abuse her for their own selfish lust, which never satisfies. It only breeds more lust. As James says, they, they desire and they have not, so they murder. Their passions are at war and the whole thing implodes upon itself. Their thirst for power turns on its head and results in destruction. We've seen this time and time again throughout history as nations rise and fall. And so it will be at the end of the age. The wickedness of man will turn to the praise and the glory of our God. Why is that? Verses 17 and 18. Why does this happen? For God. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. The wrath of God opened up a way for the kings of the earth to assemble and mount this battle. It was all a part of God's plan. It says they give their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth." It's God's purpose. It was in His wrath that He allows them to assemble and mount this attack. What king hands over power? Unless he's deceived, thinking I'm going to get more power if I hand over this power. And this will take place to fulfill the words of God. They unite themselves against God on the day of God and they are collectively destroyed. Just like Christ... On the day of His crucifixion, when all the powers of hell and man had assembled to put Him to death, in His death, He conquered them all. He defeated. He won the battle. In their unity to conquer, they simply carry out the means of their own destruction. Now I want to sum up what I think is the major message in all of this in using the words of James and John. James 4, four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no friendship here with the world. And John said, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world Verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Make no friendship with the world. All that's in the world is at enmity with God. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This world is passing away. Think of how foolish it would be to align yourself with a world that is not from the Father, but is at enmity with God, knowing that what you're aligning yourself with is passing away. It's falling. It's crumbling. Those who do the will of God abide forever. Make no friendship with the world. All that it offers is passing away. It will not last. Now, we do have a duty to steward the gifts of God in this life, and in this world. We have a duty. This is the the irony, I think, of the Christian life. We have a duty to lay up treasures in heaven, but the equipment that we have been given to lay up those treasures has been given to us in this life as we live in this world. This is the great struggle for the believer to labor in this world but to keep His eyes fixed on the next world. We labor in this world as citizens of another world. We live as citizens of a temporal, anti-Christian nation. And yet at the same time, we're also citizens of Christ's kingdom. This is the struggle. If our eyes get pulled away... And I say the struggle because we in our, in our weakness are very often drawn into a dichotomy. We, the difficulty is doing what we have been given to do here with our eyes fixed there. There is no dichotomy between laboring for God in this world and laying up treasures in heaven. There is no dichotomy from God. The dichotomy comes in us when our corruptions force a wedge between them and it makes it very difficult to keep our our gaze there and work here. It's a struggle. And a lot of times our eyes get pulled away from the next world. Our eyes get pulled away from the kingdom of Christ. Our eyes get pulled away from Christ Himself and yet we're still doing the same things. And so we think... I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, we don't realize our aim has shifted. We don't realize that in in plowing, while I might still be plowing the dirt, my furrow is going off this way. We say, Well, I'm, I'm plowing, what does it matter? Well, our aim has to be fixed. We don't make friendship with the world, but we do live in the world. Some of you men, especially, I haven't heard you speak of Christ since the election. In the name of duty, I fear our eyes have drifted. I would love to be proven wrong in my assessments. Some of you I never heard speak of Christ prior to the election. What's the flip side of that? Some of them pretend we have no responsibility to to anything that's happening in our nation. What's happening? What what is an election? Who's a president? As if that were somehow spiritual. You see, the difficulty we have, the struggle of, of, of... Balancing these things. We, we are not to make friendship with the world. It's all going to crumble. And at the same time, we're here in the world as Christians. We are to be laying up treasures in heaven. Make no friendship with the world. People say all the time, well, you know, if doing things here, it's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You've heard that imagery. Rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Well, that would be foolish because the Titanic's going down and you don't need deck chairs because nobody's sitting around. You get the, the irony of the... It's like you're doing something that's really pointless. The whole thing's going down. Well, if you saw a man and you said, what are you doing working on these deck chairs? And he said, well, I'm not actually working on deck chairs. I'm, I'm getting these pieces of wood prepared to sturdy up these, these lifeboats. Well, why? Well, just in case the ship goes down... I feel like you're wasting your time. Well, I might be wasting my time, but we might need the, these, these, these lifeboats. You see, there, there's something that we, we can give ourselves to, that if we will give ourselves to it, regardless of the circumstance, it might prove or will prove profitable, especially if the whole thing's going down. Now, I use that illustration to say this. In difficult days, a good church is important. Babylon is a cheap imitation of the real thing. Now, while there might be some duty that we have to invest in Babylon or to turn things in Babylon, we never waste our time investing and giving ourselves to the true bride, the bride of Christ, the church. Her formula is not seduction with externals. She has true inward beauty. Piety given to her by the Spirit of Christ Himself. Her force is not in human power that comes and goes. It's in the power of Christ in the keys of the kingdom of heaven given to the church. That's where she gets her power. That doesn't wane. It doesn't wax. The church will not fail because she exalts Christ who always satisfies. You come to Babylon you're never going to be satisfied. You come here, you give your attention to Christ, you devote yourself to Christ, it will always satisfy. There was a time when Christian men invested as much time in the health of their church as many are investing today in the health of the republic. Men got together on a regular basis to work on church matters, to discuss church issues. Those days, as most of us know, are, are long behind us when this nation finally buckles under the judgment of God, and it will, it will, it will buckle under the judgment of God, the church will continue. We have to make sure that we're doing our duty in both spheres. As I said, there, there doesn't have to be a dichotomy. But there is a logic, a logical line. You don't become a good citizen And therefore, that will produce a good Christian. You give yourself to Christ and grow as a good Christian and a good churchman. And those, historically, are your best citizens. Not the other way around, okay? We we, we should aspire to be what they were before we aspire to do what they did. There is a logical progression. There doesn't have to be a dichotomy very often in our weakness, we force a dichotomy. We make it a dichotomy. Again, how do I know that? Because I feel our eyes are drifting. Our eyes are drifting. If we can't come to church and talk about Christ, our eyes are drifting. Make no friendship with the world. Give yourself to the bride. As we'll see next week, if the Lord wills, Babylon will fall. And when it does, the church is going to worship at that sight.